I recognize that many of you are here maybe for the first time, and maybe it's the first time that some of you have been to church since Christmas or last Easter. And I, I recognize the fact that that's probably for some of you for good reason, that you have experienced some kind of pain in your past, that there have been Christians who have uh, hurt you, that have stood in the way of you understanding who God is, that have given you a bad representation for who Jesus is and what he's about. And so I want to publicly say that I'm sorry for that, for any ways that you have been distracted from the beauty of who, who this God is and the relationship that he wants with you. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning because we're going to try to get a clearer picture of who this Jesus is and of what he did and what we celebrate at Easter. And so to start that off, I want to look at this verse in 1 Corinthians. It's in your notes if you want to grab your notes. You can play along with a pen and circle and underline and whatever else. You'll also see the verses on the screen. Before we look there, I want to tell you this story. There was a 17-year-old who was about to turn 18. And his brother, who was a couple years older than him, when he had turned 18, brother got a new car. It was kind of dad's thing, like this step into manhood, like here you go off, you're going to college, we're going to give you a car. Now it had like restrictions on the, how expensive the car could be, but now that the younger brother is about to turn 18, his dad took him to the car lot and he said, okay, here's your parameters, what, what do you think you would like to drive? And so the, the kid had it in his mind, I'm going to turn 18 soon, this is going to be my car, I'm so pumped. But then over the next couple of months, he and his dad kind of went head to head on some things and had some severe disagreements. You see, he wanted to go and start a company with his friend who lives in a different city, and his dad wanted him to go straight into college. And so they weren't seeing eye to eye. It's kind of the tension had been mounting. They were fighting about things like that and about kind of his behavior. He felt like he was a little bit rebellious. And so the dad never said this, but the younger kid felt like dad was wishing that he could be just a little bit more like his older brother, you know? So there's that insecurity, that question that starts to build in him. So when his birthday comes, he walks into the living room where his family is assembled and they're saying, oh, happy birthday, this is great. His dad gives him a box and it's about this big. He opens up the box, tears open the paper, takes the top off the box and he sees a Bible. He takes the Bible and immediately he's filled with emotion. And it's all the insecurities and the fears that he had been wondering, does my dad think that I should be more like my brother? Is he angry at me because I should be better? Is he upset because I want to go move and do this thing instead of going to college? And all that stuff floods his mind, and he gets emotional, and he gets angry, and he just takes the Bible, and he throws it at his dad's feet. And he says, that's just great. And he walks out, and he doesn't come back. It's two or three years, and he gets a call from his mom, and he says, your dad has had a heart attack and he's, he's died. Could you please come home? So the kid, after having missed no communication for his dad in these couple of years, he comes home. He goes to the funeral. He does the funeral thing. They go back to the house afterwards and the family's together. And he walks into his dad's study and he sees the Bible that his dad had given him, this like backhanded gift in his mind. And he goes and he sees it and those emotions start to come back. He starts to feel those things again. And he picks up the Bible anyway, and this time he just kind of has a little peace come over him, and he opens the cover, and inside the front cover is a check for the exact amount of the car that they had talked about and agreed on. 
and he had to live with that. Friends, I believe that there is a God who has given you a gift that for many of you has still gone uncashed. There's a check that's made out to you of a life that God intends for you, of hope, of purpose, of meaning, and you're just letting it sit there because of a misunderstanding, a wrong assumption about who this God is and what he really has in mind for you, what he really desires in terms of relationship with you. And so we want to take a look at this God today. We want, to, we want to talk about what is it that we celebrate? What is this gift? Why do we make a, such a big deal about Easter? And in your notes, you'll see this first verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. It says this, For what I received, I passed on to you. Now, this is the Apostle Paul talking. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. So in other words, this is a really big deal. Like if there's a test and you're a kid who doesn't want to read the whole textbook, you want to know what's on the test? This is what's on the test. This is, this is the main thing. This is the thing of utmost importance. And Paul, the famous apostle, is saying to these people in this church, people like us, this is of the utmost importance. Get this. Don't miss this. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. So, so he says, this is the main thing, that Jesus came, God in skin, that he died on a cross, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb, because he was like, you can have this back, by the way, I'm done with it. And then he was raised from the dead. He says, this is the main thing. Now, not only that, but after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to over 500 people. Did you know that there is more proof of Jesus' resurrection than for much of what we read about in history books about people like Julius Caesar? Over 500 people saw this resurrected God in flesh. And Paul says, that's what this is all about. That's what this whole story hinges upon that God came, God died, God rose from the dead so that you, me, that we could have new and everlasting life. That is the broad strokes message of Easter. And you're here and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm good with like the teachings of Jesus. He's a cool guy. He says some good stuff. The principles, I get them. I'm on board. I'm, I'm down with the love thing. And I like that he was humble. I'm good with that. But when you start talking resurrection, you lose me. Because I'm a practical, uh, scientific, you know, rational-minded person, and I can't make that jump. Next, you're going to tell me that Jonah was actually swallowed by a really big fish, or whatever, you know? I, I have a hard time with the resurrection. And that's okay, but you need to understand this. That if you believe that Jesus was a good teacher, that he did some things. You have to understand that the people that wrote down the messages, the words, the, the, the miracles, the teachings of Jesus, all believed in the resurrection. Every last one of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, even Paul, who was blinded by the light when Jesus showed up to him. Every one of them staked their lives on the resurrection. Every one of them were actually killed because of their belief, because they would not let go of that belief in this Jesus and his resurrected life. Now, so it does require some faith. It's a different kind of idea. 
But I have faith and you're exercising faith right now. You are exercising faith that gravity is going to continue to hold on to you in this service and keep you in these nice purple seats. You don't understand, I don't understand gravity completely in its entirety. It's a mysterious thing. But I trust it. I put my faith in it every day. I put my faith in my dietary digestive tract. I don't understand how it works, but I sure hope that when I consume food, it knows what to do in there. We put faith in things we don't understand every day, all the time. This is one of those things. This is the big thing. According to Paul, this is the main thing. And it's why we celebrate this Easter, this message of Jesus. Now, I want to give you just in 60 seconds kind of the big the big story, okay? The big story, the context that this whole Easter thing falls into, that God created. You've heard of Adam and Eve. They're kind of a big deal, kind of famous. So he, he made them and put them in a garden, and that was humanity. He made some other humans too, I'm sure. And so, and so he makes these two people, and now it's creation. He says it's good. He says everything. There's light. There's animals, the whole deal. This is a good thing, right? And then We have the fall. When Adam and Eve turn and they rebel against God, they say, okay, you probably have good intentions, but we want to try some things out on our own. Have you ever been there? And so we reject God. That's humanity turning our back on God. They call it the fall. It just means having fallen away from our relationship with God. But that's not where it stops. Then God sends Jesus, God in skin, to this earth to die on a cross, to be brutally killed for the sins of the world because he wouldn't leave us in that fallen state. He came to make a way that we could have that relationship restored. That is the redemption. That is the act of the cross. That is what we celebrate at Easter. And then you might say, well, then how come this world is so jacked up? If this God is so good and so powerful and came like that, how come there's still war? How come there's still killing? How come there's still all kinds of this broken stuff? I see it all around me all the time. And the answer to that question is, he's telling a bigger story. We're at a certain point in this story. There is the restoring that has happened and it is happening and there was a restoration that will still come. This is a story that he's telling. It's building still. And that is the context of this larger story of Easter that we find ourselves in. And that is the message of Easter. Now, that's the big story. Here's the big surprise. The big surprise is that you don't have to go pursuing God because he's been pursuing you. Most people don't get that. Most people associate this with religion and they think I have to behave a certain way, I have to do certain things, I have to have my act together before I can earn some kind of connection with God. And that's not the message of Easter. That is not the way of God. Religion is about do's and don'ts, and if, 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 you, if you're a little bit, like if there's a sin scale of one to ten, like, like the sin's on the one to two to three side of things, like everybody does them, right? So it's not a big deal. Like you can just say I'm sorry, or if you grew up Catholic, you can just go to confession, and then, like that's normal stuff. But don't skew to like the six, seven, eights. Like those are the bad sins. That's when you probably shouldn't come to church anymore because people know, and they're judging you, and, and right? And that's when, you know, the, the law gets involved, and Right? That's the way religion is. That's the way religion thinks that we can, if we can just manage our sin and keep it over here on this side of things, then maybe we can be okay in church and with God. And that's not the message of Easter. The big surprise is that he has been pursuing you 
You don't have to get yourself cleaned up. You don't have to get yourself all perfect and neat and tidy. He's been pursuing you just as you are. And so if you look at your outline, the message of Easter, I have it broken down into four little pieces here. The first one is that love overwhelms our rebellion. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still the farthest away, imagine the worst thing that you've ever done or that's in your mind as being the worst thing. While you were in the middle of that, he died for you. We celebrate, you know, there's, you got this Bible series that's going on right now that tons of millions of people are watching and, and that's cool. I guess today it kind of comes to the culmination with the Easter story. And if you watch that or if you watch The Passion of the Christ or if you know anything about this story, you know that he was literally nailed to the cross by real people, by Roman guards and others that stood by. And what he would say is, even while you were nailing me to this cross, that's why I did this. That's why I allowed this. That's why I came and died for you because of the rebellion, because of all your sins. While you were still afar off and wanting nothing to do with God, he pursued you. There's a story that came out of South America. It's about a girl named Maria. Maria grew up in a home in a village and her dad had left when she was young. She didn't know him. She was angry that she didn't know him, and she fought with her mom. They didn't get along. She wanted her freedom and independence. She didn't want to take care of the family and pull her weight in the little, in the little village. And she had heard about this big city, and she thought, when I, when I get to be whatever age it was, I'm going to go to this city. And so she finally convinced her mom, or maybe she turned 18 and she just wanted out. And so she took whatever money she had, and she got some more from her mom, and her mom finally just let her go. And Maria jumped on a bus and she drove a long way to this city that she had heard about where there's promise and potential and things for her. She only had about six to eight weeks worth of money to live. Got the cheapest little apartment she could find. And she got a job, but she didn't know how to keep a job. She'd never really worked before, so she got fired fairly quickly. Now she was hungry, running out of money. And when you're hungry and running out of money, you start to get a little bit desperate. And and sometimes people that prey on desperate people find you. And there was a particular guy who found Maria, and he said, you tell you what, I I have a way that you can make some money. You can make a lot of money in a short amount of time if you sell your body. It's not as bad as it sounds like. He he did his pitch. She resisted at first, but about a week later when she was desperate and had nothing left, it was either go back home and be embarrassed or try this. It can't be so bad, right? And so she did, and she entered into this life of prostitution. And it was several months had gone by, and her mom and no one in the village had heard from her. And then her mom got wind through some extended family or friends in the city that they think that this might have become of their daughter Maria. And so her mom immediately, about hearing that this might be the case, and concerned that she hadn't heard anything from her, jumped on a bus, grabbed what money that she had, and went into the city. And she went straight for this photography studio. She sat in the chair and she had the guy take a, take a shot, take a headshot. Black and white, had about 200 of them printed. She took these prints, turned them over on the back of every single one of them. She spent a day handwriting this message. Maria, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. 
I love you. Please come home, Mom. And then she went around this city and she pinned these things up on every bulletin board and every motel, hotel, diner, post office and place that she thought that Maria might see it. And then she went home. One morning, not too long after that, Maria Maria kind of stumbled down the stairs from a motel room and her eyes were blurry and she was tired and she was not fully alive, fully herself. And she saw out of the corner of her eye an image and she wondered why that looked familiar. And so she got a little bit closer out of curiosity and she started to think, that might be my mom's picture. And immediately this shame and guilt overwhelmed her. She went up, the story goes, to this picture, and she took it off the wall, and she turned it over, and she saw her mom's handwriting. It says, Maria, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. I love you. Please come home. And she lost it. And something happened inside of her in that moment, and she realized just how far she had fallen And she went straight back to her little apartment and she grabbed up her stuff and she jumped on the next bus and she went home. Friends, God pursues you. He doesn't wait for you to figure out, oh, I'm such a mess. Oh, I'm sorry for this, this, and this, and this. He's pursuing you. He wants his relationship with you restored. He wants to be your heavenly father. His love overwhelms your rebellion. The big surprise is that God pursues you, and he's pursuing you today. You think that you were brought here just on accident or that you saw it on Facebook or that your friend invited you. God has been drawing you. He's been speaking to you in different ways at different times, through circumstances, through people, because he wants you home. He wants a relationship with you. The second thing is that his forgiveness takes away our shame. Look at this next verse, Colossians 2. You were dead because of your sins, then God made you alive with Christ. For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away, nailing it to that cross, that when those nails went in, he, he was in essence saying, I will take all of the stuff, I'll take it on me, all of sin and death and darkness, all the worst things you've ever done or will do, I'll take them, and they'll die here with me on this cross. That is the message of Easter. And I know some of you are still walking around carrying burdens from mistakes you've made or from things that have happened to you in your past, and it's like a wet blanket that's over your shoulders, or it's like a dark cloud that just hovers over your head and you can't get rid of it. You can't get past this addiction and you're ashamed of it. You can't get over this broken relationship. You still keep cycling through these same patterns of these relationships that don't go anywhere. They aren't healthy for you. These behavior patterns, these doubts, these fears, these insecurities, and you feel like you can't let them go. You can His forgiveness can wipe away the shame. You can live free and unburdened. You can live alive because of him. You don't even know know what being fully alive feels like yet, but you can. His forgiveness takes away your shame. And not only does it do that, and not only does he want you back in relationship, 
But the third thing is that he has a family that will welcome you home. Look at John 1.12. It says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So I threw up my little picture of baby Jack, arguably the cutest kid ever born. And, and you saw him. I mean, you just love him, don't you? And I just love him. Uh, but he hasn't done anything. Like he has, he's added no value to society yet. I mean, he just eats and poops and sleeps, and that's, that's his deal. And yet I love him like crazy. I can't imagine loving him more. Why? Because he's my kid. He's in the family. He doesn't have to earn it. He's just mine. How much more do you think that a heavenly father, not stuck in all my weird, broken humanness and insecurities and bad relationships in the past, how much more do you think your heavenly father loves you? and wants to welcome you into his family. And I've got good news. This is a good family. We would love to welcome you into the family of God and to do life with you in this community as we welcome more and more and more people in this community to the family and as we do more and more good and be extensions of his love in our city and in our surrounding cities. We'd love to welcome you into that family. There are um, many of you who wrestle with that and you feel far from God. I have a friend who grew up as an orphan. He was orphaned as a young kid and for the first 10 years of his life, it was brutal. He went into terrible foster situation after terrible situation until he turned 10 years old. In his 10-year-old year, he was adopted by a family that loved him well, a family that pointed him to this Jesus, a family that showed him unconditional love, And my friend, who started out really, really angry and bitter, has has become a new man. And he has hope, and he has passion for life, and it's because he was adopted into a family. Some of you are still spiritual orphans. You've been disconnected from your God and from your family, trying to do this life on your own. It's not as good that way. God wants to welcome you into his family And we do too, because he has been pursuing you. And then the fourth thing is this, that life overcomes death. John 11, 25 says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. I have a friend who just got some really bad news this week. He's been battling cancer for a little while. He's actually on our staff at Mariner's Church at one of the other campuses. And I got an email this week that says the cancer has metastasized and is now in the brain, and he doesn't have much more time. And it gave a couple of windows of time where I could come and say my goodbyes, the email said. But here's the thing. When I see Bob, I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm going to say, I'll see you soon. Because I believe with everything in me that I will see him again. And many of you who have lost loved ones believe the same thing. You're not even sure why you believe it, but there's just something inside of you that believes there must be something more. 
There must be a connection on the other side that, that, uh, that you will see your loved ones again, that this life isn't the end. And you're right. There's, God put this in you. It whispers to your soul. It, it speaks to you that there is something more, that this re- resurrection life matters, that death is no longer final. That is the hope that we have at Easter. It's the hope for me. It's the hope for my friend Bob. It's the hope for you that life overcomes death. Death is no longer final because of that cross. Now, there are a lot of people in here in this community that could come and share stories about how God has transformed their life, how when they understood this message and they made a decision to put their trust in Jesus that everything changed. There are many people that could share that testimony, but we have one that we put on video that I want you to watch this morning. When I was small, my world was so unpredictable and dark. And I really got the sense early on that I was kind of on my own. And I needed to be strong and I could only rely on myself. I grew up in this family um, that was destroyed by poverty and addiction and domestic violence. I do have some pretty tough memories of my dad punching my mom in the face and breaking her nose and of him smashing a beer bottle over my head in a drunken rage. There were times that we didn't have enough money for food and other times that we didn't have a place to sleep. But I had a plan. I had it in my head that if I could do all of the things that society tells us that we need to do to be successful and fulfilled, then I would be happy and everything would be perfect. So I went to college, I went to law school, I built this life, I have a beautiful home and a beautiful family. And from the outside, I had done it. My plan worked, I had fixed myself. But on the inside, I was still broken. Late one night, I was having this abdominal pain and it was getting worse. And everyone in my family was asleep. And I was thinking, do I wanna wake my husband? What am I gonna do? And I randomly reached out to God in a bargaining prayer. I promised him that if he would take away my pain, then I would read the Bible and learn about him and Jesus. It was sort of an odd thing for me to say, but about 10 minutes after I said that prayer, my pain was gone. When I said that prayer, the only thing I was contemplating was physical healing, but really God knew that I needed more than that. And he planned to heal me emotionally and spiritually as well. As I started to trust God, he led me over the period of about six weeks to this really difficult time of forgiveness. So about that same time, I received an email from my dad, who I had not spoken to or had any communication with in decades. And I knew this was God's timing. He was basically asking for forgiveness and I did not want to forgive him. I will be honest, it was not what I wanted to do, but I wanted to be obedient to God. So I really wrestled with this. And I remember I was in this hotel room And I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to forgive my dad. And I typed this letter, and it was was mean. And I read it, and I thought, this is not what God had in mind. I know it. And so I had this moment where I just really got real with God. I said, I cannot do this without you. I will not be able to forgive him if you don't help me. And he was faithful. As I stepped out in obedience and faith, he changed my heart. He came in and he took away all the pain and the bitterness that I had and he replaced it with hope. 
and with love. And I didn't hold any grudge. There was no, there was no resentment there. And now um, my dad and I, we email each other every week. And he's become a Christian too. It's just been this beautiful story that I know God is writing in my life. So as I look back and started to contemplate the amazing things that God had been doing in my personal life, I began to consider what it would look like if I invited him into my professional life. I know now that it was not a coincidence that I took these cases um, of of kids that were abused and um, families that were homeless. I see that all of that was for his good and that he was using even the difficult parts my early childhood pain, he used it for good. As I prayed about it and um, continued to sit and to journal and think about it, God gave me this just amazing idea for Christian attorneys to step out in faith and to grow their relationship with God by serving those in legal crisis. The beautiful thing about God is that even when we're not searching for Him, He pursues us. He's so good and he's so amazing that even when we're not looking for him, he comes after us. And that's exactly what he did.